down and I spent ages trying to copy and paste that. Right. Well, it was quicker than me trying to load up Safari and get into WhatsApp because don't ever buy a fucking iMac. They are, swear to God, pieces of junk. Have you just got a new one? No, I got I got this one in May last year, right? So like lockdown's happening. All my work's gonna be at home. Like we're doing the podcast on Zoom. I was like, okay, well, I'm going to make this investment, right? It's on a credit plan, of course, right? <laughs> um, but it's honestly, David, it's a fucking piece of crap. Like I had to take it into the Apple store and like, I mean, obviously I don't know anything about computers as part of the embarrassment as well. So when the guy's like, oh, so like he's talking to me about like processing and what it is I'm doing, I'm like, I don't know. Yeah, so, yeah. Like I really don't. So like, obviously like he was loving the fact that I know jack shit about computers. Um, and so they wiped, they had to wipe my entire system and reinstall it. So I lost like loads of stuff. Um, like I lost some photos and some documents and a couple of drafts of things that I've been writing. But I was like, it's worth it in the long run because it's kind of unusable. Like, I mean, we're talking 10 minutes to get onto a Zoom call, maybe 10 minutes to load up a document, which is, I know that doesn't sound like a lot of time, but when you pay like top dollar for like a good machine, you expect it to be fast. In fact, it's so slow that I returned to my old laptop that I bought in 2008. Yeah. And it's much faster. It's just more reliable. And I'm like, and I'm not the only person that has this problem. Don't buy this stuff. It's fucking junk. Cheers. Good to know. Uh, it makes me pissed off. Yeah, no. I mean, everything to do with technology pisses me off. Ruth bought a, we got a new car recently and she was saying like, it's, it is though good though when you're a woman and you can go in and sort of go, oh, I don't know what's wrong with my car. Do you know what I mean? Rather than for me, it would just be a walk of shame. Do you know what I mean? Like, my brother was saying that as well. Like, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a different dynamic. You have to admit that you're one of those men who doesn't know if anything works. You know what I mean? And men divide very evenly into those two categories, real men and men who don't understand how anything works. Well, real men make hard times. Oh. <laughs> like oh. this new yeah. logic puzzle. Yeah. Hard men make soft times, good times. No, hard yeah, men yeah. good times. Good times make soft men. Soft men make hard times. Hard times make hard men. Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> he's some lad. Uh, um, okay, what are we talking about in this podcast? Well, we've got to talk about Afghanistan. We've got to talk about Afghanistan. We mentioned the Sharon Graham stuff. Aye, sure. Because we were right. Yeah. Well, particularly, and, I would like to say I was right. Yeah. Um, and uh, and I suppose we should return to the Scottish government green stuff. Oh yeah. Right, I'm just gonna get a splash of water. Hard men make good times. Good times make soft men. Soft men make bad times. Bad times make hard men. That is the new intro music. But right. Do you think it sounds like Frankie goes to Hollywood? Yeah, yeah. Like the whole that. thing is like so fucking homoerotic. I think it would be an amazing like electro tune. Yeah. I, can we talk about this at the start? Let's just talk about it because you're already recording and then I can just like stitch it in. Okay. Um, so what is it? Strong men make good times, right? Good times make soft men. Soft men make, make bad, bad 
times. Bad times, and then the bad times go on to make hard men again, right? So this <laughs> is cyclical this is how, idea. Yeah, this is how human history has progressed. Um. So yeah, you know, but that is like that is a conservative theory of what happens. You know, the cycles of degeneracy. Do you know what I mean? You know, strength leads to decadence, decadence to weakness. Weakness requires, you know, a, a heroic figure to reemerge. Who, in our cases, what's his name again? The guy who tweeted that. Lawrence Fox. Lawrence Fox. So for our time, that the the heroic figure, the sort of Bismarckian Superman, is Lawrence Fox. Um, it, wasn't he like? I mean, isn't his main sort of public job being like the sidekick in Lewis or something? Oh, like his acting career. Is that not what he did? I mean, apart from being married to Billy Piper, who I will not hear a word against. I didn't know he was married to Billy Piper. Uh, All these guys are punching. Oh, punching, yeah. I was about to say that, punching. Um, So, yeah, but no, but I mean, look, um, no one remembers today that Hitler was once a bohemian painter, you know. Hitler is a soft man. Lawrence Fox is a soft man. Oh, controversial. But how do you know that, how is that controversial? Of like, course. <laughs> I don't yeah. think that there's anything like I see Lawrence Fox as a very soft, fragile man. And I don't and I, I think it's so obvious to me, and he doesn't see himself like that. And I always think there's a kind of a brittleness in it. You know the way that someone like Trump sort of embraced his campness and his femininity? Like, you think of his little dancing and, you know, his, like, kind of audacious taste and his whole aesthetic. Mm. Um, really well, mean, mean girl thing, yeah. Someone like Lawrence Fox, I just think, baby, you've never been in a fight in your life. Mm. And you're trying to do this sort of big kind of... He, he wants to be a strong man, but he just looks so so weak i've just realized i'm not using my microphone i mean you said <sighs> sorry what what did you buy what's in your cardboard box what's in the box <laughs> i watched that again i love seven i watched that again recently as well probably means there's something wrong with you if you watch that film more than once Oh, it's just so 90s though. That's that's why I, I love it. I love like a, a, a 90s genre film. How do I sound, by the way? Sound great. Let, let's just have this in the podcast, you know what I mean? I... Oh, you're away. That's, can I hear you now? Hear me now? Um, I was just saying, let's let's just have all this in the podcast. I mean, yeah. people know how amateur we are now anyway. You know, it doesn't make any difference. Uh, no, but it's, it's such a great kind of like 90s genre film, you know, um, Seven, uh, obviously better than that is uh, Silence of the Lambs. Uh, another one I, I re watched recently, um, not quite in the same league again, but uh, LA Confidential. I mean, Fantastic. I mean, I have a real weak spot for all neo-noir. Like aesthetically, it really speaks to my taste, like more than a kind of like, like original like film noir, but like mm-hmm. all of that like sleaze and neon, um, and like the increasingly dark themes of something like um, Blue Velvet, for example. The one I watched recently, um, just last week, was Dressed to Kill. I don't know if you've seen that. No. Uh, really, like quite notorious Brian De Palma movie from um, the 80s and with Michael Caine in it. Um, Big recommends, like you can see where a lot of the, um, like the look and the narrative from Silence of the Lambs came from. Right, yeah. Much inspired by the Brian De Palma Dress to Kill. Yeah, anyway, I think there was a spree of those kind of great kind of noir films um, I would, I would, I'd kill for a film like that as well. Again, the ensemble cast thing. I don't really feel like, do you know, I, I don't really feel like we live in a in an age of a good ensemble cast. I maybe again, I'm just old, right? I don't really like a lot of the actors that are around right now. I don't feel like there's a lot of gravity, uh, and also the cinema is just swamped with this Marvel shit. 
When when's that gonna end? That's been going on for like never. twenty never. years. Like it'll it will never end. Um, it's it's here to stay, so you better get used to it. Um, I, I, I actually went to the cinema last week or the week before, and to see the Night House, which is a new sort of psychological thriller horror bit supernatural but ultimately very enjoyable like what I liked is the the female lead as with a lot of these things that I find compelling is completely fucking dislikable like Mm. I really enjoy when I'm watching a film where there's like female lead she's like she refuses to be a victim she's just a bit of a bitch do you know what I mean which like is a good complex character But I I hate what they do now with these Marvel films where they have one that's really like quirky and self-conscious and another one that tries to be a bit more like dark and adult. It's like, these are comic books. They're for children. If you want to have a film that deals with, you know, like dark material, then I don't know, draw it from a novel or, uh, you know what I mean, a play or something. Like, get get away from this comic book stuff. It's driving me nuts. Uh, Hey. I bet that's really controversial. And I would invite people to feedback on that idea. I mean, I tend to agree. Like, I think like all of the Marvel stuff is a sign of how good times make soft men. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No, but this is basically because Scorsese said this. He was like, these films are shit, right? <laughs> and people did that. It's always this debate about who are you to say, you know what shit and what isn't uh you know you know who are you to say that just because something's like pop culture that means it's rubbish that it was initially for children or teenagers that it's necessarily bad you know um and there's this extreme kind of ecumenicism in art where it's like everything's good everything's equally good it's just a matter of taste and he's like no it's not shit right the fact that it was initially for children shows in the final product uh, and I have to say, I've got a, a certain sympathy for it. Yeah, but uh, I, I do think that this is like a strange thing of like the crisis of like patriarchy, essentially, right? So when I see like um, Father's Day gifts, right? I always have a bit of a nightmare getting stuff from my dad, right? Firstly, his football team is Albion Rovers. Merch not easy to come by, right? Yeah. He doesn't play golf and he doesn't drink. He's not in cars. So like a lot of the classic Father's Day bits, Mm -hmm. like just don't really suit. But what I've noticed over the years is that increasingly a lot of like Father's Day tat is all comic book related. It's Batman and it's Marvel. It's like Mm -hmm. superhero. It's Hulk. And I'm like, oh my God, because these are the, these are boys I was at school with who are now fathers. Yeah. This is awesome. part of the crisis of patriarchy, which is forcing them to be infantilized. Like the way that women have been infantilized, like as part of this whole feminization of the traditional family unit. I always, um, I always think about uh, a time when I was outraged when I saw um, a father and son dressed identically. So they were dressed in the same clothes and they were both dressed like Bart Simpson and they both had caps on, shorts and a T-shirt and a skateboard. And uh, and I, I just said instinctually without thinking about it, where's the ladder here? How does the son look at the father and say, one day I'll change? There's a course in my life. One day, right now I'm a child. I'm allowed, I'm given a certain license to be a child, a certain degree of irresponsibility. And then there'll come a moment in my life where I have a certain degree of responsibility and I have a certain degree of, and I have to represent something both to my family and my wider community. That ladder doesn't exist. The, the boy is the man. The man is the boy. There's no separation of, um, yeah. of well, responsibility. I mean, it really shouldn't be surprising when like the material conditions that people are growing up in now means that there's pretty much zero social mobility. Do you know what I mean? Like your chances of living at home with your parents into your mid-30s are really quite high and that's a very new thing for people in the UK and beyond that man like because sometimes people mock folk who stay at home with their parents but it's like you should look at the statistics 40% of new buyers the parents are buying the house 
So okay, you don't you don't live at home anymore, but materially your life only makes sense because of your because of your parents proper you know housing property basically right so yeah i mean that's that's just a huge thing a huge thing something we talk about a lot since we're Um, talking about um cinema and objective taste why don't we have a little interesting segue into our main topic for today and by mentioning conceptual art classes Oh God! Oh my God! That is a good segue. It is a good segue. Me, me and Cat watched a video where um, a James. I, ha- I have to. I have to grant him this. Uh, he he referred to the um, situation in Afghanistan as apocalypse NGO, which I think is fucking is great, right? I mean, it's going to be the title of this episode. Yeah. I was going, yeah, yeah, Apocalypse NGO. So, um, and it, it's a video. You can find it on YouTube. I think it was on a BBC program. Yeah, or... it's from Bitter Lake. By it's from Bitter Lake. Yeah. <laughs> okay, yeah, yeah, I remember that now. And um, she's uh, there's a, there's a woman instructing young Afghan people on modern art, and she's showing them that famous urinal. Who's it by again? Marcel Duchamp. Right. And uh, <laughs> the look of disgust on your face. No, nah, see when see when I was showing that clip again, my first instinct was don't tell them how we live. I, I just realized that oh my god, they're gonna find out how we live, right? They're gonna find out how we in the West, like what our cultures become, right? Um, and they anyway, she shows a picture of this toilet, right, to everyone in the room, and they zoom in on one young woman's face and she is disgusted. She, I mean like honestly you can just see her being like this is fucking like this is outra- she was shaking her head she yeah. was outrageous yeah. right um so uh no but that that is a good title for the podcast because this that ultimately was the uh that was the message of apocalypse now was that the the vietnamese and the cambodians were prepared for war to the knife and the Americans were listening to rock and roll and getting drunk and surfing, right? And you had a clash of civilizations where you had a frivolous civilization coming up against the civilization that was still trained for survival and for victory. Anyway, um, there was an article in Spectator with a stupid title, something like, did, did gender politics lose us the war in Afghanistan? Uh, now the answer is obviously no. Generally speaking, by the way, whenever there's a headline with a question, the answer is no, right? Because it's a provocative title. But it also did reveal that something like $800 million had been spent in America, in uh, Afghanistan on gender programs. And I couldn't find what this meant, but it sounded like it meant a series of different programs, typically around universities and NGOs. And uh, it just highlights again, like, more than anything, the corruption that must have been going on. There must be all these kind of like, you know, Robin D'Angelo types who've bought fucking mansions out of this. There must be. Like, this is is a serious part of the whole military-industrial complex, is that these types of occupations are fucking cash cows for NGOs. They're cash cows for NGOs. Like, people make so much money out of that i mean where the i want to know like where that conceptual art class came from i mean also some of the comments are quite amusing which is like the first one after like two years of like nobody looking at it is just is just this age well <laughs> oh. oh my god so yeah but again though um it's it shows you that, like, whenever that, whenever historically the West has engaged in military occupation or colonialism or whatever, you know, it's always done this. It's always used its own domestic ideologies and tried to make them plant root in the foreign soil. Now, traditionally, that was Christianity, you mm. know, or ideas about the empire and the royal family and so on. Um, it's just funny that now it's this. It's just yeah. funny now it's modern art and um well, that specifically was 
like for Afghan women. It was like a post-Taliban class for Afghan women on conceptual art. And it could be something from Brassai. Yeah. I mean, this is why like all satire is dead like and finished. And it's why that like reboot of spitting image is probably the worst thing ever to have been shown on television. Is because the age of that is dead. Mm. This is really happening. There was also the WikiLeaks page um, that, I mean, I'd shared it on social media. It was just talking about, um, it was quite clear, like evidence facts of how the CIA deployed feminism and women's rights in Afghanistan as like basically a marketing strategy to make the war and occupation seem palatable to people. Mm-hmm. Like, this is the number one thing is that feminism and I use that in scare quotes, women's rights and equality is, is used to justify modern invasion and occupation. I mean, this shouldn't surprise anyone. And no, people, no. I, feel, I fear have switched off their critical faculties, even people who were very critical of someone like Hillary Clinton, who, I mean, only five years ago, used that exact type of politics in her election campaign to justify the attitude that she has I mean she's a new war hawk I mean she's a war hawk right so people I think have maybe just been very troubled by some of the pictures coming out of Afghanistan which Mm. yeah they are shocking but everything that is happening is a product of the occupation of Afghanistan for 20 years Everything that is happening, like the the Taliban's like resurgence. I mean, the Taliban didn't come from outside. Like, it's not like the American troops left, and then the Taliban came in on like a bus and like suddenly appeared. These are the poor fucking Afghan shepherds who've had like not not money for like you know, actual social needs, but money for fucking conceptual art classes shoved down their throats or talking about their problematic gender norms or whatever the fuck that kind of money was used for that's mentioned in the Spectator article. That's who the Taliban are. Like, they are people in Afghanistan and that's not legitimizing them. I'm no. apologizing for the is what Taliban. It is. That is what that is. And... I mean, a city like Kabul, there's no fight. There's like, yeah. the, I mean, there is like no resistance. See, this that. is this is important because it's what's different this time. You have a lot of people talking about the Soviet experience. The kind of left nationalist Soviet-aligned government in Kabul after survived something like two and a half or three years after the Soviet forces yeah. had left. What's remarkable here is just that there is that regime had no legitimacy. Like, absolutely none. It was total, it was paper. There was nothing behind it. And there wasn't much behind the kind of um, this the Sour Revolution type governments, right? But what there was, was an ethos. First of all, they those governments emerged from actual domestic revolutions, mostly by like the middle class in the cities who were Soviet aligned. And, but they also did reach out to women. They also did reach out to ethnic minorities, they tried to inst- institute land reform in the countryside, backfired disastrously. That's why like, the warlords fought back um, initially. But there was a real project there that were, had a very thin material base, but was still representing something in Afghan society. This occupation and the regime it set up was totally alien. Like it, it, didn't, it didn't really have a domestic base of really any amount. I mean, literally... Um, the Taliban was on the U.S. Army's bumper as it was leaving Kabul. It's that simple. I mean, they're still there. They're still trying to get out. And the, and the only reason, by the way, that U.S. troops and civilian personnel aren't being massacred is because the Taliban don't want to do it. That's that's the reality. Because they want they need good international relations. They want to keep aid money coming. They don't want to be blocked from world trade. That's the only reason at this point. Um so, I mean, it is it's the most, like, uh, astonishing uh, defeat. Um, but, I mean, I mean, I'll, I'll, I know you've got a, a boast coming later on. I need to say I've been predicting this for about a year, right? And you can go back and read my articles about it where I just say this is just going to collapse. 
as soon as the Americans leave, it's going to go. And I didn't know that because, uh, do you know what I mean? I've been on the ground in Afghanistan and all that kind of stuff, right? Apart from anything else, it's just based in like some degree of historical knowledge. Even I was shocked by the way that it collapsed in dates. I thought like they'll, they'll fight on for a couple of months maybe, right? But uh, this, this version of like <laughs> bombing liberalism into existence, the whole idea is completely ludicrous. And I, can, I can't think of, you know, this is the other thing, like um, Saigon held on for three years, right? Or two years. Um, so, I mean, this, what I'm fascinated by is the fact that this form of uh, Western imperialism seems to be extremely institutionally weak. It seems to be extremely bad at generating support in foreign countries. And we've reached this kind of point where, I mean, look, it's not just rhetoric. I think sometimes people go too far and they say, oh, they were just lying when they said, we're going to save, we're going to send girls to school by blowing them up, right? These were just lies. Well, in a certain sense, um, saying it is noble to die for one's king, right, which was like World War II um, ideology, that's just a lie on a certain level. But ideology is never just a lie. It's felt, it's believed, right? And you can see that it's believed. Look at Scottish civil society. Like, and the people whose pure only response to this situation is, this is just a humanitarian catastrophe. Don't talk about politics. Listen to Afghan voices. Who's exactly the fucking the Taliban? Center Taliban voices. Center Taliban. No, seriously. But no, but I mean, they might as well be saying center Taliban voices. Of course. This, like, is what, this is what I mean about the this perception of the Taliban being like a force, like an external force. The Taliban are the surviving family members of poor Afghans in rural communities who, you know, their towns were fucking massacred. Yeah. Because, it, it, because of the American war effort at home to garner support, the US government then wanted to become a bloodbath. So in order to protect American troops' lives, they resorted to bombing campaigns. Like that, it was it was drone warfare. It was um, conducted in the skies, and the people who were victims were rural villages. Do you know what I mean? Like actual, just poor fucking shepherds, right? So if that's not going to radicalize entire families into the Taliban, then I mean, I just don't understand why I think it is shocking that it happened so quickly, but I don't understand why anyone is surprised that this has happened. Um, and I just would plead with people to, you know, don't get swept up in the, this is just a humanitarian crisis, because that mm. means that you can only have a humanitarian response. And the response needs to be political. It needs to be safe. This can never happen again. And the, like NATO forces, like any of the NATO countries, must not stay in Afghanistan a second longer. Like yeah, absolutely. A second longer. And yeah. the fact that Nicholas Sturgeon, I mean, honestly, that's a politician who can never again talk about their anti-war or CND credentials. Yeah, yeah, I agree. After um, that statement. So um, Nicholas Sturgeon was uh, in the front bench of the SNP. Obviously, they were not they were the opposition in 2001. But she supported the invasion of Afghanistan. And in fact, it was John Swinney uh, who uh, introduced the debate to get Holyrood to back the uh, invasion of Afghanistan. Now, part of the reason for this was that there was, you know, some kind of UN mandate to invade Afghanistan. I have to say, that's always annoyed me, that stuff. Like, you know, you got this whole thing about like, um, oh, I'll, I'll oppose the Iraq war if we can't get a UN mandate for it. Fuck the UN. I mean, what is that? Nonsense, honestly. Anyway, uh, so the SNP backed it because they want to be seen to be friends with anti-terrorism, the UN, Washington, London. This is part of their broader strategy. Um, and uh, I sent a... I sent a media request asking if they now regretted their decision to support the war on occupation. Obviously, I didn't get a response. But then a few days later, Nicholas Sturgeon comes out and says, keep NATO troops in Afghanistan. So I think we know they've not changed their mind. And, the, and honestly, like anyone who's just saying, oh, it's just for the refugees or whatever, it, the most poisonous thing you can do is attach uh, 
the, the, the cause of rights for refugees to imperialism. Please stop attaching all these things to imperialism. Feminism, we have to advance women's rights with, with uh, imperialism. We have to advance the rights of refugees with imperialism. Stop it. I can't believe we're still doing it 20 years later. It's yeah. the most destructive thing you can possibly do. Yeah. Um, and like the thing that really gets me about the original arguments to do with the invasion of Afghanistan is that because it's a really, it sounds like a really better thing to say, but the anti-war movement was fucking right. We were right about this. Like, do you know what I mean? People predicted that this was not the right course of action because it was driven by the whole ideology around the war and terror. So there was never, a, not that this would have justified that, but there was never a genuine intent to bring any type of peace to Afghanistan. There was never any attempt of peace and reconciliation talks. So after the initial invasion and the most of the Taliban fighters fled, there was no amnesty, there was no process by which Taliban fighters could fucking surrender. There was, there was none of that happened. Like, and if you maybe genuinely believe that you were the world's peacemaker nation, right? then maybe that's something you would have considered, but it was never really about that. It was about regime change in the interests of the US. Absolutely. And, and like NATO positioning, nothing to do with the war and terror. It had to be branded as that in order to gain some degree of public support for it at home. Yeah, and and you know, I mean, it, these these arguments are almost cliches by this point, but they they bear being restated. That kind of uh, that version of sort of jihadi uh, sort of ethos is it smaller now or bigger than two thousand and one? Immeasurably bigger. Like it's spread all over the world, as again the anti-war movement predicted. And th I think I think they actually used those words. I remember. Old Galloway, I remember him saying over and over again, this will metastasize and spread all over the world. If you attack countries like Afghanistan and Iraq, it will go everywhere. And it has. It's all over Africa now. Uh, it's, uh, it's in China. So through huge swathes of Asia, right? Uh, so we know that attacking it militarily makes it bigger, right? If, even if it was attacked, do you know what I mean? Like, as you say... No sooner was the United States in Afghanistan than they were down to their usual business, cutting deals with local Mujahideen types. Uh, you know, it was, uh, you know, setting up gas pipeline deals. It was putting pressure on Iran's western border. It was doing all the kinds of stuff that imperialism does. It was not, you know, de-radicalizing the people of Afghanistan or some, some nonsense like that, right? Um so yeah, it's it's a load of uh, it's a, it's a load of old guff. But you see it coming bubbling back up to the surface again because people are stampeded into these humanitarian choices. You know, that's the whole method of like, oh well, you know, politics is well and good, but right now there's a crisis, and look at these people at Kabul Airport, and right now we just need to talk about how we save them. Oh, and by the way, the most responsible way to do that is with NATO, um, and it's incredible watching it in Scotland as well because. Liberal humanitarianism is so hegemonic in this country, perhaps more than any other. You know what I mean? Because even in countries that we think of as quite deep into that ethos, like in the, you know, like the Nordic countries or something, there's more pragmatism, even there, right? Where it's also a problem. There's lots of stuff with NATO and in, in Nordic countries, but there's still a bit more pragmatism in how foreign policy is, is viewed. In Scotland, it's rabid. I mean, I didn't see the Greens are formally anti-NATO. Uh, I, I haven't seen them mention it. I've looked at all their official communications and it's not been mentioned, right? It's a joke. Uh, this is, by the way, NATO's worst defeat ever, like, uh, in its entire history. This is its most calamitous moment. And it's also one that's exposed a lot of infighting inside NATO. There's a huge amount of disunity. And what, what has been become apparent, as, again, everyone on the anti-war left knew, is that NATO is just a front for the United States. And as soon as Biden says, I'm going, it's over. Like, yeah. it's over. And you've this pathetic uh, appearance of Nicola Sturgeon saying, no, let's stay. You and whose army? Do you know what I mean? And I'm, I'm so sick of this stuff, man. Like, I know, I, people say it's a cheap shot, but pick up a gun and go and do it yourself. Stop sending 
you know, like poor kids from from some of the uh, some of the poorest communities in Scotland, because that's 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 who's getting sent over, right? Pick up a gun yourself and go and do it the next time you have one of these bright ideas. But but the the important thing is that Nicola, everyone understands that Nicholas Sturgeon really really cares about the refugees. That's that's what's important here, right? Not the fact that she's going to be putting uh, these young men and women back in harm's way again. That's that's irrelevant, right? The most important thing is everyone knows that Nicholas Sturgeon is a lovely, cuddly liberal, right? Ugh, it's grotesque. I find this stuff uglier than what you see the Tories doing or what you see Biden doing. Because yeah. yeah, with Biden, it's callous, right? But we know we knew that he's he's fucking Genghis Khan. That's who the head of the United States is, right? It's a he's a warlord. At the end of the day, he's like that. Not in my country's interest. I'm out of here, right? At least there's a degree of honesty at last, right? Uh, with Sturgeon and Blair and all these types, it's still this. Oh, we need to stay. We need to stay and, and help the refugees, help the poor Afghan people. You know, we need to we need to throw another hundred million at some gender program in Afghanistan. What the fuck are you talking about? Like, and it's just also it's not going to happen. So it's pure PR at this point. <laughs> Everyone knows it's not going to happen. I mean, NATO is a fucking relic. It is a Cold War relic, and it is run by the US for the US. Like, the whole UK-US relationship, like, solidified within NATO, is, like, it is part of the America's project in Europe. Like, that's mm. what this is. Yeah. So why is the First Minister of Scotland so supportive of NATO? Like this is not this is not the type of independence that I would want to see. Like I am categorically not interested in independent and independent Scotland being a member of NATO. Like it's the the thing that frustrates me about a lot of this is how much goddamn ground the left has lost on these questions, which I think are of fundamental importance. Things like imperialism, things like NATO things like Palestine, the amount of ground that is being lost because people are being herded into this like humanitarian position. Like, I mean, it's fucking, I mean. Um, uh, yeah, so uh, Afghan, I mean, what I think that the, the line that's drawn under this now is I don't see a return to uh the last few years of Western foreign policy. Like, I think that humanitarian intervention at this point, despite what fucking Dorian Gray, Nicholas Sturgeon wants, do you know what I mean? Uh, I think it is done. Um, and that that kind of, it dovetails with everything else we're talking about in terms of, you know, the tail end of neoliberalism, like the end of this historical cycle, hopefully. Um, but that doesn't mean that the politics of this are any less important because imperialism is a constant permutation. The war on terror is over and is ended in unambiguous defeat. Um, but there's a future for this this trajectory. You know, I mean, one of the one of the things that's been a big debate in Western foreign policy circles during the Afghanistan stuff is um, China and Russia and how they perceiving all this. And what we do. So it was interesting in Biden's speech, he said, China and Russia are laughing at us staying in Afghanistan because they know we're not achieving anything. And that's a direct response to the hawks like Bolton, who are saying China and Russia are laughing because we're running away. Right. And that both of those things are probably true. Right. Um, but, you know, the great game in that regard is back on. I mean, literally, the great game is back on in, in uh, Afghanistan because Taliban are in talks with Russia, China, America, everyone. Everyone wants the ear uh, of the new government there because it's a strategically vital place. And it's just fascinating to watch the inability of the kind of Western establishment intelligentsia come to grips with the fact that now we're just one of several different houses queuing outside, you know, queuing in the lobby of the Taliban to talk to them. Like, times change. Like, I mean, that is a remarkable image. It's remarkable that we are now, you know, waiting on them to speak to them. Uh, it's, uh, yeah, strange days. Um, but, like... Some more strange days 
is uh, one of the best takes on the situation in Afghanistan comes from Tasmina Ahmed Sheikh. Oh, God. <laughs> oh, my God, man. So, Tasmina Ahmed Sheikh has a wee article out about Afghanistan. I've not read it. I've just seen the uh, the sort of the quote, the the, the national um, put out. Tweet. I know. I thought it was a it was a Inflammatory. And she says, uh, "What did she say? That the Taliban they're not Boy Scouts, but they're not. Uh, you know, they're not evil either." Um, <laughs> like, is it necessary to get into a debate about the nature of the Taliban? Uh, I really don't think it is. I mean, we'll watch and we'll see. The only thing I'd say about it, man, is that it's not worse than the people who were there before. And I know like, people don't want to hear that, but it's true. Like, the, the NATO occupation was completely brutal. A thing I wanted to say when you were talking about those bombing campaigns, do you know when that ended? Days ago. The US was still bombing Afghan cities days ago, yeah. right, to try and stem the Taliban advance. So, you know, if people have this idea that they're, I mean, it, it's incredible how the media has managed this, right? There's, an, there's a refugee crisis now. Five and a half million people have fled Afghanistan in the last 20 years, right? And we heard a little bit about that, just a little bit about that during the refugee crisis a few, crisis a few years ago. But in those days, and those five and a half million people, they're not all fleeing the Taliban by any means. No, like, they're, they're fleeing fucking American bombers. They're, they're fleeing American bombers. They're fleeing the permanent state of economic crisis the country's been in, right? And they're fleeing. Uh, and they're fleeing. Uh, by the way, the government in Kabul was disgusting. Like they totally corrupt. Like they used the American forces in order to like settle scores. Settle, settle scores. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Like they would actually they would provide intel intelligence again with the scare quotes and to us or the like nato forces in order to get back at someone yeah because they were completely okay with allowing a foreign power or foreign powers to direct that effort against the taliban from day one yeah, and, and, and they were still operating CIA-trained death squads uh, right up until until the very end. I mean, people were still getting assassinated and stuff right up until the very end. The, the level of corruption and drug dealing and killing each other, you know, rivals and so on was just... And the thing is, it was, um, it was sort of institutionally compounded because in the early days of the occupation, the US was handing out money to people to identify Al-Qaeda cells. So everyone just started daubing in the 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 clan that they hated <laughs> and uh, they were just like the us was just going around killing random people thinking that yeah. they were al-qaeda i mean and like there is a lot of truth to the fact that refugees from afghanistan were fleeing the dire economic situation because what happens when you start to conduct war from like from the sky is that you're not only killing people, but you're like destroying arable land. Mm. Like the economic situation has been disastrous for the whole of the like the occupation. Where you have, I can't remember the figure that you gave, but like millions of dollars being spent on conceptual fucking art projects that ain't no money for water and bread. Yeah, and one of the consequences of the economic disruption is that Afghanistan now exports over four times as much heroin as it did in 2002 because, you know what I mean, like the la the drug lords have just consolidated all the land uh, and they're using it apart from anything else to finance the Taliban, but finance all kinds of stuff. Um, and the, the thing, uh, those drugs are coming back here. Those drugs are going back into the communities where troops in the United States and Britain were conscripted by poverty to go and fight in Afghanistan. I'll tell you what's probably quite good for PTSD. Yeah. Heroin. A bit of Afghan heroin. Like, so yeah, no, absolutely. Like, There's going to be all these traumatised people coming back and no doubt ending up hooked on stuff that uh, that is now tumbling out of Afghanistan. Uh, but, I, but that war is humanitarian. So, you know, you can't, can't complain about all this kind of stuff. Uh Anyway, uh, grim tidings, but uh, 
Oh, uh, Sharon Graham won the United election. I mean, was there not a smoother segue? No. <laughs> now we've discussed that. Let's discuss this ne the next item. Um, this, this is Cat's Post. So, as I predicted, um, Sharon Graham has been elected to the new General Secretary of United Union. Um, right winger uh, Coyne has come last. So it's fucking good news all around for the trade union movement. Um, Shannon Graham's a, yeah, she's a very interesting woman, excellent strategist, um, you know, is interested in winning. Um, I know that there's a degree of skepticism about what she will be able to do in terms of the labor link. Um, but ultimately, I know Steve Turner was the official left candidate the reality is, is that for a lot of Unite members, he was the Len McCluskey continuity candidate. Let's be honest, right? The Labour link left continuity candidate doesn't fucking wash in Scotland. Mm -hmm. <laughs> the only candidate to say anything about that was Shannon Graham. Doesn't wash in the Republic of Ireland either. Doesn't mm -hmm. wash in Wales. And it doesn't wash in the parts of England where there are still pockets of industry anywhere where there's any type of car manufacturing any of the fucking food processing plants any of those types of areas like there was always a bit of a problem with the whole the carbon project as it became at the end because these are the parts of england that all voted to fucking leave right yeah yeah right so when that whole brexit fudge happened with Corbyn there's and it's Len McCluskey who I think did the right thing and backed Corbyn to the hilt like there was a disconnect at the base and if you have someone like Coyne who isn't going away who has a lot of money to run a campaign because of his backers um, in the media and outside of the trade union then you're in a very difficult situation and I think Sharon Graham was able to you know win for the left in a way that wasn't seen as being like the the point of unite is to fund the Labour Party, even when it's run by someone like Keir Starmer. How I mean, if she'll be able to do anything about the link, hmm. uh, is another thing that we'll just have to wait to see what happens. And um, but I do think it's it's interesting. It's a really interesting thing. I think it's a victory for anyone who is left wing, who thinks the Labour Party is in crisis and, do you know what I mean, is supportive of organising drives to allow workers to experience their own collective agency. I mean, that's that's what you want, like, as a, as a trade union organiser, it's like, how do I get workers to experience unity in action? What does that feel like, right? And it's not about where you stand on the GRA, and it's not about, like, what you think of Brexit, it's not about those things. It's about like unity in action to know that your strategic advantage is that there's more of you than there are of the boss or the management team or whatever it is. Um, and I think Sharon Graham will be able to deliver on some of those things. Like the stuff around Amazon that she promises to do is, uh, is quite exciting, I think. Yeah, I, I agree. It's interesting um, because obviously there's a certain. Um ethos around how you should organize trade union activity now in charge of the country's largest union so it's going to be a very revealing experiment my my general thing about this is and you're closer to these issues in many ways than i am in all ways but like the the the, the problems that the trade union uh, movement face in well the whole western world right but let's just keep it to britain they are really um profound and i suppose for me i'm interested in the question of if you apply this or that organizing schema to trade union work how much of an impact can that have right i'm always interested in that question of how much here is the subjective push and how much of it is the weight or the inertia of objective circumstances because the reality of trade unionism in the uk is um most workplaces don't have union uh, a union presence yeah. um, 
obviously mem uh, trade union membership has shriveled massively in the last, I mean, there's been a retreat of trade unionism in Britain for about 45 years, right? Which is a huge historical fucking uh, like black hole. But um, yeah, so it's in, it will be interesting to me to see how much new ideas and a new approach to organizing can, re can reverse, you know, even any of those problems. And the thing I think about it is, like, that's such a challenge. I think it would be wrong if in three or four years people were saying, well, let's have a look and see if she has actually, you know, I mean, resisted the decline of trade unionism in the UK. I think it's going to take longer than that. Like, like um, I mean, it, it, you know, there is actually, there's a lot of interesting stuff happening in the labour market right now, right, with there's a lack of labour, there's increasing wages, um, there's a break in the, in the stagnation of wages, which is basically unprecedented since about 1990. Um, so it's an interesting time on that front. But I, I, I mean, the, I, don't, I don't envy Graham her challenges. Like, yeah. <laughs> I think it's, going to be, it's going to be challenging, right? But I think it's important for the, the, her victory to be celebrated, right? Because ultimately, where, the, where trade unionism is strong, is in the public sector, right? Mm. And as we always say, like the public sector for as well as it is organized cannot lay a glove on private capital. But a union like Unite can, right? Now, public sector strike action, I think is not impossible, right? But dating back to the one day public sector strike over a steady on the 30th of November, 2011, the TUC's purpose to coordinate between unions to deliver that type of strike action lasted one day, 24 mm. hours before there was a fucking collapse of it because one union thought actually we can settle on these terms and the whole thing collapsed. And that was the, I think that that was the end of that style of trade unionism. And I think mm -hmm. there now needs to be a different way of doing it. And I think it will be really interesting to see how Sharon Graham approaches those trade union bodies like the TUC. The like, TUC can't call a fucking strike, right? And we're like, one of the kind of Trotskyist refrains is like, TUC off your knees, 24 hour general strike now. Well, they fucking did it, right? It collapsed and those pension changes happened anyway. So, I think it'll be interesting not just to see what she's able to deliver and unite, but to see what can happen like across the whole movement. Like, can this actually herald some type of change within the whole trade union movement? I mean, the TUC is basically just another NGO now, isn't it? Mm. Like, there's mm -hmm. no real like industrial muscle. It's not workers' parliament or anything like that. It's just it's just a thing that you know, producers reports. <laughs> um, and it wasn't that long ago before things like the TUC conference were broadcast live on television and people tuned in. I remember my granddad watching the TUC conference. Yeah, it's a different world. It is a totally different world. And I now think that that is exhausted itself. Um, what will be interesting is where there is the opportunity for actual conflict with private capital. Take, take the example of, I think something that's still quite tricky for people in Unite to, to discuss is um, Grangemouth and what happened mm -hmm. at Grangemouth with any of like an actual conflict <laughs> between the interests of labour and the interests of capital and how easy it was for capital interests to just say, well, we're just shutting it and walking away. Do you know what I mean? So I think it'll be really interesting to see like those types of conflicts um, unfold in real time. Like, can concessions be won? I've said a few times now that I think that the big, um, the big fights for a lot of workers has to be about working time. Mm. It has to be about the length of the working day, the length of the working week. Um, you know, not just about wages, but I think the pandemic has put a lot of things into perspective for people about what really matters. Do you know what I mean? Like spending time with your family who live in a different country or, do you know what I mean, your, your neighbours or your pals, like whatever that is, like that's actually 
a really important thing. And I think that people are starting to shift their perspective on that. So I think watch this space. I think I said that last week about the SNP and the Greens as well. Oh, nicely segued. Because I was just thinking there, I should have gone from Afghanistan to the SNP and Green Corps. Because the Greens have been funnily, they've been quite silent about the NATO stuff, haven't they? I thought they were supposed to be like a sort of big anti-NATO. But they yeah, but they obviously it. all. Do you yes. think that, that is because of the coalition? I think it's a bit of both. So I think it's partly that they don't want to say, they're not going to say in the middle of a negotiation with the SNP, unlike the SNP, we oppose the war in Afghanistan. Do you know what I mean? And unlike the SNP, we're opposed to NATO, which has been occupying Afghanistan for 20 years and has just faced its worst military and political defeat. Time for a rethink, SNP. They're not going to say all that in the middle of a, uh, of a, a negotiation. But it's also the humanitarianism stuff. Like, the Greens are dripping in it, right? It'd be so hard for Green politicians to come out and say, look, yes, we're, we're, we need to talk about, you know... Um, helping the Afghan people in, in, in purely non-militaristic and non-meddling ways. However, we need to recognise that this complete catastrophe has been brought about by NATO and the war on terror and so forth. Very difficult for them to say that because of who their social base are. And their social base doesn't want to hear it. I mean, I, I, I did a thing where I went around and, and looked at what some of the kind of NGO figures in Scotland were saying, and it was just uh, the most apolitical, nihilistic attitudes, basically. So it's very difficult for them to escape the orbit of that, uh, of that kind of politics uh, and, and say something that's actually incisive and political. I mean, there are statistics out showing, well, first and most importantly, that the public overwhelmingly rejects humanitarian war, right? even more so than they did at, you know, the time of the Iraq war and so on, right? Uh, humanitarian war, what a phrase. But um, they overwhelmingly reject it, but it does also show that there's slightly more support for it on the left than there is on the right, right? Which is the big problem here. I mean, uh, there's, there's a certain sense in which right-wing politics is simply more pragmatic and less prone at times to these sorts of reactionary utopias. Do you know what I mean? This this weird thing of like we could we could save the people in Afghanistan if only uh, if only they'd accept our lifestyles. Um, like that's a that's a certain type of reactionary attitude that has a purchase on the liberal left, where it doesn't really have a purchase anywhere else. So anyway, I think it's both genuinely ideological and based on the fact that they're, they're having these these talks. Anyway, there is a coalition agreement. And it is a coalition agreement. It is a coalition agreement. Um, I fucking gaslit over this. It's a coalition. <laughs> yeah. So, so the, the reason people are saying it's not a coalition is because there's not full cabinet uh, collective responsibility. But it's, it's very rare. the same as the Tory Lib Dem coalition. Yeah. yeah. The, I, if, there's a, if there's a slight difference, it's that the, the Lib Dems had to go along with all the austerity. That was one of the agreed areas. The agreed areas in the coalition are an independent referendum that's not going to happen and a bunch of policy stuff that's not going to happen, right? So they all agree on that stuff and then they can criticise each other in other areas. But that's that's quite common for coalitions to, to arrive at an agreement like that. And yeah, they've got a couple of um, ministerial positions. Um, so... Like, yeah, I mean, it is, our, it, is, it is the more flexible end of what a coalition is, but that's just a type of coalition. Um, I assume, because it's in, in any of these situations, it's generally the case that the more powerful force going into it has gotten what it wants out of the situation broadly. There are times when coalitions hurt the bigger party. So that was true recently in Italy with um, where the League of Odds, sorry, just the League of Now, uh, was able to undercut the five-star movement who were actually the bigger party but Liga were coherent and the five-star <laughs> were the most incoherent thing in the world so bananas yeah so, so I mean they, they were ripe to get torn to bits um, sure. by, by something with a sort of I instinct I don't understand work. about like the green I mean I think it was pretty obvious for months that the 
Greens were champing at the bit for the coalition. Mm-hmm. Um, but I don't, this is probably why I'm not a politician, but the Greens are literally the only competitor to the SNP, aren't they? Like, mm. they're the only, like, other, they're the only pro-independence alternative that has seats. Mm-hmm. I mean, they're the only established pro-independence alternative to the left of the SNP. What's in it for them? Yeah. Do you think that they know that they're kind of at the limit? I want, yeah, I wonder about that. I mean, it, honestly, I don't think you can entirely separate things out from the personal. Look, if you're Patrick Harvey, how long has he been leading the Greens? A good while, right? A long time. If he you can, one of the longest serving parliamentarians. Mm. Uh, look, if if it all goes sour and the Greens lose seats in the next election, right? Which I don't think is necessarily going to happen. I'm I'm just saying, if, even if that were the worst outcome, right? Patrick Harvey can just say he can just move into the third sector or whatever, where he can get any job he wants, right? It, once you certainly once you've been a minister in the government, you have access. You have access to various things. I mean, that's putting it very cynically, right? But I'm saying, but well, I'm not saying it's the whole reason it's happened. But I'm saying it's a factor in politics in a political career. It's a factor. Um, you know, in some senses, it might be, it might create difficulties for the Greens if they turn it down, because you might get an element of opinion in the party who are like, we're not ambitious at all. We're not. We're not even trying to win anything here. We just want to be our own little party. So there's maybe a little bit of that. But, but yeah, I think I think maybe the maybe the strategic thought is look. We're winning around among artists and academics and third sector types and kind of boho types, right? But there's an area of Scotland, kind of middle Scotland, who want to, who want to see that we're serious, that we can take ministerial posts, that we can have a degree of collective responsibility, that we can administer and not just protest, right? So maybe that's the kind of longer term strategic thought. Um, but I, I, the SNP gets so much more out of this. They close their, they, they close their left flank, right? Um, they, my assumption, as I've said, is that there's not going to be an independence referendum. And that means that, you know, in, in 2025, 2026, who knows how that will, will have reacted on public consciousness once, once again, this hasn't happened. It's not very hard to say. But what there won't be is a sort of legitimate centre-left pro-independence party, right, that a certain block of aggrieved SNP voters could then go to. They've closed that down, right? And I don't I don't really think that sort of green voters will go towards something like Alba or something, right? Um, and they certainly, certainly didn't in the last election. So they've closed down the kind of their, their left flank and their independence flank, right? Those are the two big things to get out of it. And there's some window dressing, you know, like COP26 is coming up and the Greens are in power. Uh, I mean, this is the other thing, though. Like, the environmental issues have never been bigger and the Greens are about to compromise themselves on all the environmental issues. I don't... I don't really... I don't get it. But this is, as I say, why I'm probably not a politician. Yeah, but... I, yeah, so, but I, I... I just... I mean, I feel that Green Partyism in general is a bit of a dead end and I think it's been proven to be as such already all over Europe. So... In a sense, I just think, well, it's got to go somewhere, right? And into the into the centre is, I suppose, where it where it generally uh, where it goes. But you know that I don't know. It might have an impact, an interesting impact on uh, consciousness among some sort of people on the left in Scotland because the Greens were a real option, and I think I think in a few years' time they really might not be, right? Um, now, uh, see on other, some of the other policy matters. I think this is, is un, un, important. This is understood, right? Um, so some of the one of the things that was in the in the policy prospectus was uh, uh, rent controls, right? And you could say, well, if that actually happened, then the Greens could ride into the next election. Um, the Greens can go into the next election saying, like, oh look, we won this. This is what it's like when you get Greens in office, right? So we'll vote for us again. But the very fact that that's going to be in 2025 implies to me that it's not going to happen, or at least that the Scottish government 
that the SNP and the Greens don't want it to happen, right, or are prepared for it not to happen. The SNP don't want it to happen because they, the, the, the landlord lobby is really important to them, right? So they've put it in 2025 because this is what the SNP does. It runs down the clock on pieces of legislation that it doesn't want to enact. Something will come up that means this can't happen and it has to go bleed over into the next parliament and both parties will run on <laughs> with it in their manifestos, no doubt. But here's the thing. The Greens knew this as well. When they agreed to a policy programme as part of the coalition that had rent controls in 2025, the Greens knew what that meant. The Greens knew that that meant that it wasn't going to happen, right? And what they want to be able to do is, we fought for rent controls, but the SNP said no. So what we need to have next time is a government where we have more representation, this sort of thing. So the game is afoot. And my only point on this would be, because you get people saying, well, now the Greens need to avoid kind of corporate capture or capture by the state or whatever. It's been going on for years. The Greens have been passing cuts budgets for years and years and years. This coalition deal was done with, you know, capitulation in mind, right? So it's not that this stuff is planned out in advance. And there needs to be a degree of canniness about all that, because it is going to be a major fight over the rent controls, as long as the extra parliamentary forces around it understand, and I presumably will, that neither side in this is sincere about, about getting it through. It's going to be movements versus government, as far as I'm as far as I'm concerned. And it's important that people understand that and we don't get yeah. drawn into the the bullshit, you know, uh, circuit of Scottish politics. And you know. On that note of the bullshit circuit. I mean, we are the bullshit circuit of Scottish politics. Mm. This is the bullshit circuit. Um, I think that was a very enlightening episode. This podcast. <laughs> are we done? Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, it's super sunny, so I'm going to go sit outside for about five minutes and then come in because I'm too hot. Yeah. It sounds good. I think I was sweating earlier. Just, I was sweating earlier. Just sitting. I, uh, yeah. Like, that's, that's the worst part. That's when you realise that you're like a disgusting human being. It's <laughs> <laughs> when I've been sitting at the table and like the sun is beating down on my back and I can feel like a little bead of sweat roll down. Oh, my I'm yeah. like I'm a fucking scum, man. <laughs> yeah. Like. I mean, it's because nobody's got air conditioning. Yeah, we're not used to it. 